Uh, this morning, we, we're going to start off with uh, something different. So we have, I'm going to invite our elders to come up here. Um, the elders and their wives, please come forward. Yeah. These couples are amazing. Um, let's see. So just to give you kind of a heads up, we consider ourselves an elder overseeing church. And so our elders, we task them with direction, protection, correction. So really they're the ones sort of setting some of the direction for the church. They're overseeing correction if it needs to happen. They're protecting our flock. They're really tasked with shepherding and looking out for our staff and each one of you. And um, these are I love these couples. They're amazing people that really care deeply for you guys. Uh, but we have kind of a process when we bring new elders on where we'll take them through like a six-month apprenticeship with us. And so they're in all our meetings. They have some reading to do, and they're part of all of our discussions and whatnot. And we sort of ask them along the way, is this something that you feel like the Lord's calling you to? And do we feel like this is something we see evidence in your life that the Lord's asking you to be a part of. And so Tavis Thrum has been in that apprenticeship with us for the last seven months. Yeah. And, uh, and so this morning, we're really here to just let you know, like, Tavis has reached his time, and, and he's done, and we are exiting him off the island this morning. Thank you for your service. <laughs> um, but what we'd really like to ask you guys is, for the next two weeks to prayerfully consider Tavis and Jonna and the step to um, become part of our eldership. And if you have any questions or you have red flags or concerns about Tavis, mainly the fact that he has a big sign on Highway 90 that says his name on the side of a building, that's a red flag. It's a red sign. Yeah, it really is. Uh, but we, would, we have an email address. It's uh, elders at anthemcda.com. And basically, we just come before you and say, if there's any concerns you have, then let us know, and we will take note of those concerns. But if our church feels good about this transition and adding uh, uh, Tavis to our eldership, then in two weeks, we'll bring him before you guys, and we'll pray over him and Jonna and kind of install him as an elder of our church. So anyhow, that's all I got. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, give it up for these guys. Just... Just to give you a little glimpse, we met on Wednesday from 5.30 till 11.30 at night. That's, that's what our meetings are like. <laughs> it's like a second job. And that was not what was proposed when we started this. So two things. I'm not above bribery. If you need snow shoveling, let me know. I've been doing it for these guys for the past all winter. Uh, and uh, if you're a friend of mine, please don't email. That's all I ask. So. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning again. You guys turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, this morning we're going to look at the whole chapter, all of chapter 8 in Nehemiah, verses 1 through 18. There's a bunch here that's like so critical for the health even of the church today, the vitality of the church today. So I'm going to read through this and then we'll pray and we'll jump in, and uh, you're going to have to have grace with me for some of these names that I have to try to pronounce in front of you. Um, but let's jump in. So Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 1. You guys good? Okay. 
And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. There we go. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, nope, oh, sorry. Yeah, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Would you guys stand with me? Let's pray. I meant to have you stand for that whole reading, so I'm sorry. Um, Jesus, I just come before you this morning and we lift up this text. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the privilege of being able to gather together as your church. And as we read from this this morning, God, we acknowledge the fact that there's something really great about your word. There's something amazing about lifting it up above everything else, God. 
and acknowledging your word is the way. And I just thank you, Jesus, for your grace for us. I thank you for leading us and directing us through your word. And so this morning, as we read from it, we talk from it, I pray in your name, Jesus, that you'd instruct our hearts and our minds in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Brief little history lesson for us this morning. For about a thousand years, the only available translation of the Bible was a version called the Latin Vulgate. And the problem was that very few people had the time um, that at this time spoke or understood Latin. And so most people had not actually read the Bible for themselves. And even the, the, the priests had not actually even read the Bible fully at that time. But in 1521, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, having been condemned by the Pope and hidden away in a castle, he translates the New Testament from Greek into German. Uh, the following year, it was printed on a brand new technology at the time called the Gutenberg Press. And it changed not only Germany, but it changed the world forever. And so as the Reformation spreads, the, the, the translations from Greek were appearing in most European languages, and the Bible was unleashed all over Europe. Now, at, at this time in England, you could have received the death penalty if you were caught with even a portion of the scriptures in English. And, and there still hadn't been a complete translation uh, created at that point. So in 1525, just a few years later, a man by the name of William Tyndale left England, travels to Germany, Germany, Germany where he found the, uh, the freedom and safety to translate the New Testament from Greek into English, and then it's printed there in Germany, smuggled back into England, and English readers were able to read the Bible for the very first time. Eventually, this guy, William Tyndale, is caught um, he's condemned as a heretic, he's strangled, he's burned at the stake, like pretty intense for translating the scriptures. And if the Bible is available to you and I, if it's available in our language and we have the opportunity to read it, as many of you do, either in paper or even on your phones, you're indebted to men like Luther and to men like Tyndale who literally gave up their lives to get to the Bible, the Bible into the hands of Everybody, they literally believed that, the, that God's word was for everyone and needed to be read and it needed to be understood by all people. And this belief isn't just a belief of this reformation. It's actually core to the scriptures themselves. And so as we're going to see in this passage this morning, there have been many times throughout church history where the church community didn't have access to the scriptures uh, that you and I do because the word was not available to them in the language that they understood or they didn't have physical copies of scripture available to themselves. And what's so tragic is that we sit here this morning and we literally have unlimited translations in English of the scriptures and in hundreds of other languages as well. We have nearly unlimited copies in, in, of biblical resources and whatnot to help us understand the Bible. We have more than, than could possibly be read even in you and I's lifetime. And with all of this at our fingertips, we find the church growing more and more biblically illiterate. What an interesting season.
And if you read the Bible in English and you have access to the internet, you literally have more access to the scriptures and biblical resources than any generation that's ever lived before you in history. You have more than what Luther or Tyndale could have possibly had imagined would ever even exist. You have it all at your fingertips as we sit here this morning on your phones. And yet this access that we have has not led us to more knowledge, more understanding, or more transformation in the church. And in previous generations, the the Bible wasn't known because it wasn't available. Like they didn't have copies of it or it wasn't translated into their language. But in our generation, the Bible's not known because we have not opened it. And here's the tragedy is that where the scriptures are lost and forgotten, so is the gospel. And so is worship. And where the Bible isn't opened and it's preached and obeyed, the the church actually shrivels and the church dies because it's the life source that God gave us. And so we're seeing this in our nation right now where there are many, many buildings with the word church on the side of them. Many, many people that gather under the banner of the church under Jesus Christ. And yet the word is not preached and the word is not read. And the way renewal or renewal happens in the church, if that were to happen, the way a country is renewed or a people are renewed is always by the exaltation and the recovery of God's word. Like that is where it starts and you see through history uh, and you even see that happening today in this text that we're gonna be in. It's through the word that God begins to renew his people and so often the church is tempted to believe that progress is really the way to renewal. That we just need to change and move along. That for the church to be revived and for the church to actually be renewed, we need to move beyond the Bible. Because we've learned more things, right? We know more than the Bible. (laughs) And we come up with new interpretations and we come up with new ways of thinking and we've sort of progressed past the Bible and so we've abandoned this hope that we have for renewal. And so both history and the scriptures themselves show us that the way to renewal is through a return to the word of God. And that's really what we're gonna focus on this morning that we embrace its authority, that we embrace its power, that we see this in this text this morning. Nehemiah chapters one through seven were really about all, re, all about rebuilding this wall that we've been talking about. And when you think of the book of Nehemiah, you often think about Nehemiah just building a wall. I mean, anytime you mention that name, you, you think about this wall that was built. But we're halfway through the book of Nehemiah, the wall's been built, and yet the book has not ended. There's a whole nother half of the book to come because it's not the end of Nehemiah. Actually, the building of the wall isn't even the climax of the story of Nehemiah. Like ultimately we realize that Nehemiah is not about the wall because there's actually a bigger problem that exists. Nehemiah realizes that the wall was not the biggest problem that faced this city and this people. You see, the holy city that we talked about last week actually needs a holy people to inhabit it. So you can build the holy city and create the place, but without the people that are sanctified and holy themselves, you have no people to occupy this holy city. And much more than like a security problem that they had without this wall that was crumbled, that they were rebuilding, 
the people had a spiritual problem. And so Nehemiah knows that the renewal of God's people will not come through a bigger wall, a more stout wall, something that's going to keep the enemy back a little bit more. But it's actually going to be through the return of the centrality of God's law, of his word in his people. And so that's where we're at today is he assembles God's people. And he calls for Ezra, this priest and scribe, to teach and to instruct them. And so as we talk about the renewing of God's people today, there's three things that I want to point out in this passage, three components that I want us to observe that are not just critical as far as Nehemiah 8 goes, but I think they're critical for the church today. And the first one is this, is that the Bible, the Bible needs to be read, right? The Bible is read. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 6, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood this list of people. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So what is going on here? It's this first day of the seventh month that's in the midst of this, this uh, festival called the Feast of Trumpets. It's this holy day of celebration. And the focus here is on the gathering of the people. And so all the, the, so all the people come together, they gather between verses 1 and verse 12, there are 13 references to the people that he makes. Nine of those are actually to all the people. And so the nation is basically assembled, and we're told twice that it was both men and women and all who could understand, and so it's just not some of the people, it's all of the people, not just the academics, not just the priests, not just the older people that may have had some connotation of the law, but it actually was all of God's people gathered together on this day. And if in light of what, the amount of people that we read last week that came back to Jerusalem, how many people is that potentially that are gathered here? 42,000. It's the assembly of God's people. And the church today similarly is sort of built off of this picture of the assembly of God's people coming together. And the church is called in the Greek the ecclesia, or the assembly is, is what we call it. It's the gathering of God's people. Verse 1 says, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And the question is, who's they? When he says, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, who's they? Who is it that's calling for the book? Who's asking for him to bring this? And the answer is all the people. The people are asking for Ezra the scribe, the priest, to bring the book. And so the assembled people, they're, they're calling for this book. They want him to read from it. They want to hear from the word of God. And so they have this anticipation and this eagerness to actually hear from it. And church, this is really the beginning of renewal that's taking place. 
People were hungry for the word. They're literally calling for it. Like, bring out the word of God. We're not going to be content. We're not going to be satisfied until you bring out the word. And this is sort of the key ingredient when we talk about renewal, is that this happens, that there's a hunger in the people. And the first step is that people hunger for the word. And so they call on Ezra, and they tell him to bring out the book. Well, who's Ezra? In the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 6, it says that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And it says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and its rules in Israel. And it says that the hand of the Lord God was on Ezra. And so Ezra is this Bible scholar who had come to Jerusalem in the second wave of those who were returning from the exile. And he seeks to bring renewal to the people through the law, through the word. And so here's what happens is they call for Ezra and they have a platform that Ezra can stand upon in order to read from the law. And he's above the people, he's visible to them. They can see Ezra, they can see the the book of the law. And it's important that they actually do this, right? It says that Ezra opens the book in the sight of the people. So he's standing before them on this platform with the book opened, reading to them. And it's important that everybody can actually see Ezra and see that it's really important that everybody is that he's actually reading from this book because that's where the authority is and this even is what should be shaping churches today right the word of God you know before the the reformation you know what the most important piece of furniture was in the church it was the altar Because the Lord's Supper was front and center in any gathering of the believers. So the the bread and the the wine would be placed at front and center on the altar before the, the gathering of the believers. And the people were sort of behind this divide. And so you had the priest that stood basically between the people and this communion table and so the communion would be there the priest would stand before it and then you'd have the people and what this signified is that you basically come to God through me like through a priest that was sort of your access to God and then when the reformation happens there's this return to scriptures and it actually leads to kind of a change of furniture in the churches like physically, these churches changed when they became Protestant and they became the, these reformed churches. The altars moved to the side where communion is done. The pulpit is moved to the center. The Bible is placed upon the pulpit and this is where the teacher would teach from, from the Bible and up above and in front of all the people. This is what you kind of see happening with Ezra. He stands in front and center. He opens the book in the sight of the people. And still today, like in in, in biblical churches around the world, no matter the culture, it's so interesting when you walk into a church in Ethiopia, you walk into a church in Israel, like India, wherever I've been, they always will have a wooden pulpit and a Bible sitting on it. Like that becomes key. That, that we have an opportunity to read from, to study, and to understand God's word. And what that says is that God actually sets the agenda for what it is we're doing this morning. This isn't about Chris, it's not about my commentary or how good of a message I can give. God sets the agenda through his word. And so, this is what Ezra does. 
And what do the people do? Well, when he opened the book, all the people stood and they begin to listen to the word. They're standing like six hours listening to Ezra just read the law. And when they stand, it's sort of this corporate um, sign of their reverence for the word, that they're actually accepting God's authority. They're gonna stand in reverence, they're gonna listen to the word being taught from Ezra. And this is why I love it, like even sometimes we'll have you guys stand as we read the word. Not that you have to do that, not that we're sinful if we don't do that, but what it says, what it communicates is that we value the word of God so much that we're gonna stand and give reverence to it. There are certain things that we do in our culture, like actions we take, that communicate something greater when we do those things, right? So like, how many of you guys proposed to your wives or your husbands in this room? You just got married, you didn't have to propose, it just happened, right? Um, how many of you got down on one knee when you proposed to your husband or your wife? What does that signify? You don't have to do that, to, you could text them, right? Will you marry me? Like, you could do whatever you want, but we get down on one knee and it signifies, it's reverence. It's saying like, this is actually an important moment. There's something taking place here and so I'm gonna follow form. Might be a dumb example, but likewise in the church, there's something about us standing. When we talk about worshiping the Lord with our hands in the air, man, this is not platitudes, this is not about going through the motion, it's this posture of our bodies in a place of saying, we have a reverence for the one that we're worshiping and that we're reading about, that we're studying that I'm willing to even bow a knee, I'm willing to surrender everything, I'm willing to look like a fool in order to make him known and to put him first. There's something about that. And look what happens in verse three. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You know, the, the scriptures themselves have a lot to say. Like, to, to preachers and shepherds in the church, that it has a lot to say about their responsibility to teach the Bible faithfully to people. Like what I know is that there's expectations put on me as a teacher or a preacher in God's church, that I'm gonna be held accountable for what I say. That one day I'm gonna stand before Jesus and say like, this is what I taught your church. And if it was heretical, you know, like, that's a no-no. Like, I wanna make sure that I stand before him and that I taught it well, that I presented the word, that I didn't give you a bunch of commentary on my life and my opinions, but I taught you what it is that the word of God said. But you can't ignore the fact that there's also a responsibility on you, the hearer. There's a responsibility on us as the church as we listen, to listen to the word attentively to hear what it says, to submit ourselves to God's word, to apply God's word in our life, and to actually obey what it says. And so there's this responsibility on the teacher to faithfully proclaim God's word with accuracy and with clarity and faithfulness. And there's a responsibility on the listener to be attentive to hear, to respond to God's word, to have a heart that's ready to receive, to have ears that are attentive, to have a life that's ready to be transformed by God's spirit in God's word. And so when he finishes reading, they all say what? Amen. And then what? They worship the Lord because this is the right response for the word. The right response to his word should be worship of him. 
And so we burst out into praise. Like they, they thank God, they're honoring him, glorifying him for who he is, what he's done. Like we hear the word and we respond by worshiping. So the first step in renewing a, a church or a community of believers is to return to the word. The New Testament says so much as well. It says in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says to Timothy, he says, devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. For Timothy to, to be faithful and fruitful in his ministry, Paul's urging Timothy to do what? To devote himself, to literally commit himself to the public reading of scripture. And there are so many things that a pastor can devote their time to. Like, I am constant, like, not all of you are pastors, so you don't always get these. I get lit up in my email box, my Facebook account, my Instagram account, with message after message from people trying to sell me their book to tell me their strategy about how to build the church. Constantly. And it's easy to get lost in all these other strategies. You want church growth strategy number one? Come to this conference, buy this book, do these things, X, Y, Z will happen. But it doesn't seem like that's the model set for us in scripture. It honestly seems like God has built you and I with this desperate need for him, to hunger for his word. And when there's a hungering for his word and there's somebody to present it, to read it, to, to give it to us, it is like it is filling a void within our hearts that God created us with, that we need it. And Paul knows that for Timothy to lead well, he has to devote himself to the public reading of scripture, to its teaching. He has to create community around the word, a people who call for the book, a people that are willing to live under its authority. And when God has commanded us to be devoted to the public reading of scripture, why would we abandon this important practice? Why would we ditch it? I mean, what better activity could we possibly be doing? What better thing do we have to do than the most critical thing that God has told us as a church we should do? And here's the deal, is that where the Bible is read and people begin to respond in prayer and in worship, revival follows. How many of you have prayed for revival in the last year? A lot of you. Where does that start? In you and I. We don't just pray for God to make it happen. We step into it and participate in it. That we ourselves become revived. Second thing is that the Bible needs to be understood. And this is such an interesting portion of this text. Verses seven through 12 says also, and then a list of names. Um, <laughs> These people and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy 
do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to spend portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You know, verse 7 begins with this list of 13 names. There's some pretty amazing names in there for those of you future moms and dads, right? You're looking for some interesting names that nobody has. Go find them in that passage. These men that are spoken of, these, they were Levites. And the Levites, they were there to actually help with the teaching. They're, they're, they come from a priestly lineage. And so after Ezra reads the law, these people go out and they begin to help people understand what they're hearing. So there's like six on one side, seven on the other, and 42,000 to divide and conquer. So do the math on that. That's a pretty big church that you're given right away. Go out there and help them understand what it is that they're hearing. And so they're tackling questions. They're giving clarity to things. They're explaining it, maybe even helping them understand how to practically walk out what's being taught. And you look at verse 8, and it's really important. He says, and they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You see, their situation was not much different than you and I's. The, the Old Testament law was written in Hebrew centuries before this. And this generation of people living in Jerusalem had grown up in exile in a foreign land. They primarily spoke Aramaic. And for the most of them, um, the, their understanding of Hebrew would have been very limited. Like they wouldn't have even understood what it is that was being read. And so the context of the scriptures were, scriptures were way different than the situations that they were in. And so while it all seems like the, the Old Testament to us, it's actually like quite a different situation that they're living in from when the law was first given. And so Ezra not only read to them, but he explains the text to them. He helps them to understand it. He helps them to apply it in their language and culture and context. He wanted them to see its relevance. He wanted them to see the authority that, has, that it has in the situation they're in. And what happened is they heard, they understood. And because they understood, they wept as the law is being read. Why? Why, why in the world would they be bawling? Because they're convicted by what it's saying. So as they hear the word of God, they realize that they've failed to keep the law that he's reading. They're like, my goodness, I'm a Jew, but I do nothing that you're talking about. I don't practice any of this stuff. And so as they learn, they realize, man, my life is not actually in line with what it is that he's reading. And so they wept out of this attitude, this posture of repentance. And it was actually a really good thing. They're weeping because they're understanding and they're desiring to actually live into it. The scariest thing is when we can read the word of God, we can learn about our sin, we can understand even our rebellion, and then we feel absolutely nothing. Like that's one of the worst places to be as a believer. I've been there in seasons where I read the word of God and I say, I should sense something here. So I know my life is off. And I don't. Some of us in this room, we don't read the word because we don't like what it says and we don't like having to say it has authority and how does my life line up? What do I think about the word? What is it? What place does the word give God in my life? And do I actually trust him? And will I actually obey him? So I just won't read it at all. 
But we often become so numb to the word of God and, and to the working of the Spirit, the Spirit, that we feel nothing. And so in order to receive the good news of the gospel, we first need to understand what? The bad news. We have to know our need. Like the whole purpose of the good news of the gospel is to know that it fills a need, a deficit that we have. We have to receive the bad news first in order to receive, or understand the bad news in order to receive the good news. Is your heart moved by the preaching and the reading of the word of God? Does the gospel of Jesus in and of itself excite you? Does the word convict you and comfort you? And does the word transform you and move you? Or are you callous and cold to God's word and feel nothing as you read it or you hear, hear it being taught? And so Nehemiah and Ezra and all the Levites that are helping, they urge the people not to weep, which is so funny. They're like, we need to weep. Like, we're so far off. And he's like, stop it. You need to rejoice because it's the first day of the seventh month. It's the day of the Feast of Trumpets. It's supposed to be a day of rejoicing and not mourning. And yes, they realize that they are sinful, that they're far off, but it's actually really good that they feel and sense the conviction that they do when they hear the law being read, but they need to understand that God is merciful and God is gracious, and so this is a day of rejoicing in their salvation. And, and look at verse 12 how it ends with the people. They went their way to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And so here's the key, is that the Bible needs to be read, but then the Bible also needs to be understood and explained. So our goal is not just to read, but to explain. And so the task of like a preacher or a teacher really is the same as what the Levites are doing here. Read and explain, read and explain, read and explain. So the, ser the sermon really should be a window into the original text. It should be pointing us back to the word. Like I realize that I am not a brilliant person, that I am not super entertaining. I'm an ordinary guy. But what I am and, and what my life is committed to is sort of being a tour guide for you guys as our church. Years ago, I, I spent some time in Egypt. I, did, uh, I went there a couple times for some ministry stuff. And both times we went there, we had a couple pastors that served as tour guides. Anybody ever been somewhere and had a tour guide show you around? What's the responsibility of a tour guide? Are you to be infatuated with the tour guide? Oh my gosh, that tour guide is so amazing. Like, such a cool person. No, you're infatuated by the places they take you and the way they help you understand the places they're showing you. And that's really the, the objective behind a teacher or a preacher. It's like, they're a tour guide. Let me take you on a trip. Let me help you discover the landmarks and the key pieces of scripture. Let me help you figure out how to apply those to your own life. Let me give you insight into some of those things. But the preacher, the teacher is not the main point. And we live in a culture where we've elevated the preacher or teacher to become the main point. We literally attend a church because we like the pastor. We like the worship leader, we go down the list. And really, those people should just be tour guides for you and I. Third thing, and I'll end on this, is that the Bible's obeyed. And this portion is just so awesome. Look at verses 13 to 18. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills, bring branches of olive and wild olive and myrtle and palm and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And so the people went out and they brought them and, and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from, the, from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the, the day after this first day, the second day, this group of people come back for more Bible time with Ezra, and they come to study the scripture a little bit more. And one of the things that Ezra teaches them on day two was God's instructions for this feast of booths. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. And so the people are learning about this for the first time. They had never even heard of this before. And it's part of their culture. Like it's in their heritage. So first off, like what was a booth or a tabernacle? It's a tent. It was a temporary shelter, a structure that they would build. And so during this feast, all the people come to Jerusalem. Within the walls of Jerusalem, they make these temporary shelters. They build these little tents out of branches and leaves, and they grab sticks, branches, leaves, everything, and they build these temporary little tents. They build them on top of their roofs. They build them in the courts. They build them like in the temple courts. They're building them anywhere they can put these little things, these little tents, to stay in them throughout this feast. And so everybody essentially goes camping for a week in the Jewish culture, and it's, it's part of one of their festivals. But the purpose of this is to remember how their ancestors lived in tents for 40 years in the wilderness. How God brought them out of slavery into Egypt and had given them this land where they now have homes and families and cities. That he's blessed them with this place. And so they celebrate this feast of tabernacles, this feast of booths, to remember what God did for their ancestors. But to also be reminded of what God is currently doing for them now. And as the people are learning about the Feast of Booths, as, Re as Ezra's teaching it, they realize that it's actually coming up in less than two weeks. They're like, oh my gosh, what we're reading about is actually coming up. It's the second of the month. The Feast of Booths starts on the 15th. So they do it, like everyone does it. They, they'd never heard of this feast before. They, they've totally forgotten about it, but they immediately just get up and they do it. They drop everything to go begin to gather all the branches and get everything in order. They go out, they get branches, they make themselves these tents on the roofs and in the temple courts and they're building these tents everywhere. For seven days they live their lives in these booths. And what I found really remarkable is look at this phrase in verse 17. It says, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. So nobody had celebrated the feast of booths since the day of Joshua. Like all throughout the monarchy, all throughout the reign of Saul, the reign of David, Solomon, it's pretty wild. Like that's what it says, that they hadn't done this. It may mean that they partially celebrated it, but there had been this long lapse, but they hadn't celebrated it in the way that God intended for them to do it. 
So these people hear about it. They, they, they obey it. They obey it fully for the first time in like a thousand years. And it's amazing. Nobody said, that's not what we've done in the past. Because <laughs> they'd never done it before. And it says in verse 17, there was very great rejoicing. Church, we often believe the lie that obeying the Bible will be hard, that it will be sad, that it'll be tiresome, that it'll be unbearable, that it'll be painful for you and I. And the truth is, is that it may be hard. And the truth is, is that there are times when it might cost you something, but I want to encourage you this morning that it's also your path to the greatest joy. It's it. For those of you in this room that struggle with joy right now, Your marching orders have been given to you. The path is right here. And Satan is going to tempt you to believe that obeying God will actually rob you of your joy. That's what he wants you to believe. He's going to tempt you to believe that life is sort of this dichotomy between obeying God and enjoying life and that you have to choose one or the other. You can either obey God or you can have a fun life. When in reality, like obeying God will lead you to your greatest joy. Like your adversary will tell you that to obey God will rob you of your joy, but it's a lie because the false joys that are offered to us in our sin and in our disobedience always reveal themselves in time to be counterfeit versions of joy. It always is revealed. They offer joy and satisfaction, but they always renege on those promises every single time. But in God's word and in obeying God and the gospel, like we find joy and not only joy now, but a joy that multiplies, a joy that grows in time, like walking with God, walking in life, in obedience, closest to him, being set free from the slavery and the, the corrupted, our corrupted desires. Like this is the life that God has for you. This is the life that you were made for. This is the actual good life that God intended. And it is where joy actually is. And so we see that the, the people obeying did not rob them of their joy. Instead, it did what for them? Very great rejoicing. And there's always very great rejoicing when God's people know him through his word and obey him. And so church, we can't be a people that just read the Bible. We can't just explain the Bible. We have to be a people that actually follow it. The, the word of the preacher, the work of the preacher, again, read, explain, read, explain. But the work of those who listen is to believe, to obey, to listen, to understand. And that, if the church is gonna be renewed, it's gonna be as a result of your understanding, walking in your obedient, obedience to the word that God's given us. As a parent, I'll invite the worship team to come back up, but as a parent, I don't know if you feel like I do, but sometimes you feel in stages of life with your kids, like you have this part-time job telling your kids to turn off their lights, pick up their messes, Anybody ever struggle with that? Don't do that, close the door. You know, like you're running around, it's like a part-time job trying to make sure to do all the things that you told them not to do, to do them because they forgot to do them. And regularly as a parent, you find yourself saying things like, please put your toys away, or that doesn't go there. And occasionally your kids say something back to you. 
that really bugs you. They say something to the effect of, um, yeah, I know. And you're like, you know? Yeah, I know. Oh, well, you, you didn't do what I asked. <laughs> like, how in the world do you know? Like, you claim to know, you say you know, but do you actually know? And for many of us that are in this room this morning, we know the scriptures. We can quote the scriptures. We know what God is saying. Maybe some of you this morning, you know in your heart of hearts what God is calling you to. What he's asking of you right now, you know what it is. It's not unclear to you. Some of you sit here this morning knowing what you should do. Like God has already revealed it to you, but God isn't calling us to know stuff. It's not about knowing. But he's calling us to act on the knowledge that we have, to obey the calling that he has for us, to step into the good life, like away from sin, away from the idols, away from the things that are tripping us up, the things that are slowing us down, to run to him in obedience, to follow him with all that we have. We don't want to be the kids that know what we ought to do and don't do it. But to run to him, to listen, to act, and find the joy that's available for you in him this morning. And just as there's this world of difference between knowing where the toys go and actually putting them away, there's a world of difference between knowing that God is trustworthy and actually trusting him. Between knowing that our behavior is sinful and actually repenting of it. Between knowing that God is loving and actually living as though you are a loved person. And so we don't want to just have knowledge without action. We need to do, we need to receive, we need to believe, we need to repent, we need to trust, we need to know that we are loved. Let's be a people who are always calling for the book. Never satisfied until the scriptures have been read. Like, always desiring to have them explained and understand and apply them. Not content to just learn about the Bible, but eager to be transformed by it. Does anybody want that in here? I think that's available to us. And like I began with, we have no excuse. Because there are people that went before us that did not have the access to what it is that we have access to. We have no excuse. I'm gonna show these stats with you really quick and then we'll pray. 71% of professed believers professed followers of Jesus, believe that there's no such thing as an absolute truth. That's a recent Barna study. 61% of professed followers of Jesus say that they do not regularly open their Bibles. And I'm not using this as like a guilt session to get you to just read the Bible. What I'm encouraging you with is if I was to ask for a show of hands this morning, how many of you feel hopeless? How many of you feel like there's just an absence of joy in your life? How many of you feel like, man, if God could just step in to the situation in my life and give me some clarity on how to approach that situation, maybe there would be some hope in it actually panning out. How many of you feel like, man, I've been addicted, I've been stuck in this way with these things for years of my life, there's things that have constantly made the priority in my life that have paid the toll on me if I could just figure out a way to get out of this. 
And my challenge this morning, my encouragement to you this morning, is it's all right here. And if you want it, it is at your fingertips. And if we want to talk about revival and renewal in Jesus' church on this land in our lifetime, it's going to start with the people that hold this thing up first, begin to read from it and try their best to understand it, grab those who understand it better than we do to help us understand it. And after we understand it, not just file it away in our brain, but begin to be a people to go, oh my gosh, let's go gather the sticks. Let's go get all the stuff. Let's build the tents now. Like seriously, we can do that. Like, let's rejoice, let's make this happen, let's walk this out. Like, what is it that God is asking of us? Let's go do it. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for you. There's a a couple of guys in this church that I started doing this read through the Bible in a year workbook with um, as of January and um, man, I would highly encourage you to just drop into the Bible and start reading it and there's going to be a lot that you don't understand but ask one of us, there's resources, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff you can find to help you understand things that many people have never had access to but there are glimpses in the word of God of hope and of his joy, who he sees you as, what your place is in him, what salvation means for you, that are nuggets that you need for your life in the day and age that we live in. And we need to be people that devour the word. And so I'm gonna pray for you this morning just that God would give us an eagerness to study and to know and to obey. Jesus, I thank you um, for this word that you've given us. I just get so stoked thinking about 42,000 people surrounding Ezra, listening to what we would consider some of the most boring text in all of the scriptures and watching their lives, their hearts just come alive. And I'm praying for us, God, that you give us a renewed outlook on your word for those of us that have just always been convinced that it's boring and it has nothing for us in it. I pray Jesus for a change of heart and a change of mind. I pray, Jesus, for you to give us the strength and the discipline to set time aside to actually read it and to understand it. I also pray, Jesus, that for the parents in this room, that we would be a people that would help our kids understand it, that we wouldn't just even read it for ourselves, but we'd read it to help our kids parse it and get it so that they can understand what it looks like to follow you. So, Jesus, may your hand be upon your church, upon each soul in this room, May you be at work in us and as we talk about this eagerness, this desire stirring up in the people to hear and to know the word of God, I'm just simply asking this morning that by your spirit, that desire and that hunger begins to be created within us, Jesus. And I pray that right now, God, create that hunger in us. By your spirit, create that hunger in us. That we would be a church that doesn't just settle for TED Talk sermons next best thing but that we constantly be going
come back to your words, feed from it, to learn from it, and to walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.